Sharjah is similar to Barbados in that we are both water-scarce countries. Also, this is a very migrant space. And so I think because things are at such a crisis at the moment, what could be more important than planting a garden? We're all dealing with global warming. And so I think maybe bringing and sharing knowledge from my part of the world with people here, if we can go together, we go faster. There's value in sharing the knowledge that we have from the Caribbean and connecting with people here to create cooler green spaces. Hello and welcome to Biennial Bites, everyone, the official podcast of Sharjah Biennial 15. My name is Horal Kasemi. I'm the director of Sharjah Art Foundation and curator of Sharjah Biennial 15, Thinking Historically in the Present. In this podcast, I'm going to be asking artists about their practice, their process, and how their project speaks to our current moment. Over the next half an hour, we're going to be finding out what makes their work important and why it's relevant to us. Today, we have with us artist Annelie Davis from Barbados. Can plantations become sites for challenging the very conditions of their existence? How can art acknowledge traces of colonialism or present alternatives to contemporary exploitation? Annelie Davis confronts these questions as a visual artist, cultural activist, and writer. Her artistic practice focuses on post-plantation economies by engaging with the landscape of Barbados. Hi, and welcome to the Sharjah Art Foundation's podcast, Biennial Bites. Annelie, it's great to have you with us. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I remember meeting you for the first time at Video Brazil with Holly Bino in 2015. Well, six years later... I was trying to get to the U.S. and all of Europe was on the red list. So I decided to go via the Caribbean, as I'd never been to any of the Caribbean islands. David Ajay was going to Barbados and suggested that I meet him there. And I said, well, I know someone there <laughs> doing great work and it would be great to visit and see more about what you do. Yes. So I was really grateful for the time you spent with me, um, introducing me to many artists and local projects and uh, taking me around mm-hmm. when I was... Uh, in Barbados for two weeks. So I hope your time in Sharjah was just as meaningful. Oh, yeah. It's been such a pleasure to be here. I've never been to this part of the world before, so it's very different. Are there any stories or impressions you're going to take away with you? I know you met many wonderful people. Mm -hmm. Um, I know you're still meeting more people, but it would be great to hear. Yeah. We went out today because we're trying to get some clay pots for the living apothecary that we're working on. And that landscape was very different. So the mountainous region, I don't even know what the material is. It just looks very foreign to me. It's very dramatic and beautiful. Of course, very aware of, you know, climate change issues while I'm here. The heat is is quite something. Seeing the expanse of sand, uh, a lot of very familiar plants that I'm seeing here that also grow in Barbados. There are a lot of men in the space and I walk in the street at night and I feel very safe. And this is something that I think I'll take away. The warmth, the hospitality and the genuine gentleness of people. You've talked about growing up on plantations in Barbados and what a conflicted experience that was. How did your formative years within these landscapes shape your artistic consciousness? Yeah, so that's a kind of a a long story, really, because um, my father... Is a pl- was a planter, and I was born and raised on sugarcane plantations. Barbados was uh, Britain's first sugar isle. It's where they perfected the machinery of the colonial project. It's where the 1661 Slave Code was written and exported to the rest of the Caribbean and the American South. 
When I was growing up, because I was surrounded by fields of sugarcane, I thought I was in a natural environment. It wasn't until I got much older I realized the plantation is the practical application of geometry and there was nothing natural about it. So there are 1,742 cane plants that go into an acre of land. Um, and it's all very carefully organized. We have one of the oldest sugarcane breeding stations in the world. So when the British came in, it was a very biodiverse uh, island, but by the third quarter of the 17th century, that biodiversity was almost completely eradicated. What I became interested in was what my father considered to be weeds. I was walking in former sugarcane fields, and I started seeing these plants, and I thought of them as performing a quiet revolution in the fields. And these, what were called weeds, were really important plants within the indentured and enslaved society. And so I started to understand I had a very colonial education. I, the plantation was inside of me. And in some ways, I wanted to begin to unlearn the plantation. I think making my work has been a process of doing that and reassessing everything I've been taught and really understanding that the plantation has shaped us at every level of society in terms of race and class, who we can love, how the landscape has evolved. It's very much about monocrop farming. It's not about recognizing the value of diversity and hybridity. And so I think I've been really interested in the landscape, thinking about the soil as tomb, soil as witness, soil as a holder of memories, and really trying to understand um, and re-educate myself uh, differently about the history of this place. Here, I recognize that we are all living through the sixth extinction, and the plantation has contributed to that in the plantationocene, one of these terms that we use to describe the sixth extinction. Sharjah is similar to Barbados in that we are both water-scarce countries. We are dealing with, well, here, desertification. Also, this is a very migrant space, Barbados is seen as one of the more developed Anglophone Caribbean countries. So we had a lot of people moving. And so I think because things are at such a crisis at the moment, what could be more important than planting, planting a garden? Uh, in this location and in Barbados and in Scotland, where I have a small garden going, that we're all dealing with global warming and we're all dealing with increased, I mean, in our case, increased hurricanes. Here you have rising temperatures. But driving out today when we were going to buy the pots on the side of the road, it's an austere environment. It's a very harsh environment in terms of the climatic sort of environment. And so I think maybe bringing and sharing knowledge from my part of the world with people here if we can go together, we go faster. And, you know, I mean, we're just on the heels of COP27. It's so urgent. So I think that there's value in sharing the knowledge that we have from the Caribbean and, and connecting with people here to share knowledge about the power of plants and trying to create cooler green spaces. So a little bit about Annelie's project for our listeners. For the 15th Sharjah Biennial, Annelie grew an apothecary which, as you know, is a medical garden made using plants, herbal knowledge, and gardening practices from around the world. Annelie's project in Sharjah critiques colonial cultivation as well as the misuse of land due to globalization. For Sharjah Biennial 15, you're working on a living apothecary. Can you tell us about the plants and herbs that'll be part of it and what their significance is? Yeah. So I'll step back a little bit to say that I had started drawing um, 
these wild plants on plantation ledger pages as a way to intervene another kind of narrative into the ledger page, which is basically the system of accounting that the British Empire used globally. And I thought, well, if I could insert other images into the ledger page, I could tell another story. And then I thought, well, maybe I can use these plants to make tea. And I started making tea. I did something with cooking sections back in 2016, produced a tea service because the British, the most drunk beverage in the UK after water is tea. But I made a tea with plants that I harvested in former sugarcane fields as a healing tea. I took this combination of lemongrass and bay leaf and Circe and I served the tea. And then the natural evolution from that was to produce this small, what I called, bush tea plot, a decolonial patch. And that was a, a commission for the University of the West Indies, and it had in 10 plants. And I would share information about what these plants were and how they were used. And then when the opportunity came to work with you for the biennial hair, I thought, well, this incredible courtyard called Betel Herma, the woman's house, I'm really interested in the power of plants to heal, but also how plants can be used for women's both reproductive and post-reproductive well-being. And there's a historian in Barbados, Dr. Tara Innes, who has done work on enslaved society and, you know, how women gave birth and how they took care of their children and the way in which local plants were used for that. So I thought at first I could have this focus on women's reproductive and post-reproductive healing. Um, It's kind of grown a bit more. Uh, We've just planted out, I don't know, over 150 different species, but they're all medicinal plants. So some that I've brought from Barbados include something called Circe bush. Um, It looks like a tiny little wild cucumber. It has a ball that's like bright orange. And when that pod opens, these fire engine red seeds come out. And those leaves are used for purifying the blood, uh, detoxifying, getting rid of worms. The roots could also be used to terminate a pregnancy, bringing in okra, something called the pride of Barbados. So a number of plants that would have been used as abortifacients within enslaved society for women to try and control fertility, but also things that would be used to expel the placenta, to support breastfeeding, something called fever grass or lemongrass, which you have here in the urban garden. The work is called Pray to Flowers, a Plot of Disalienation. And I think the colonial project created so much alienation alienation from land, from history, from language. And what I'm trying to do here in the Pray to Flowers, A Plot of Disalienation, is to create an inclusive, welcoming space and to make people feel less alienated from plant material, from history, and to see how we can come together and um, think about the power of diversity and hybridity within this the space that is really responding to the plot of land that enslaved Africans were given within the plantation was functioned very differently to the geometry of the plantation. So this small plot was a space of intercropping. It was where the land that the enslaved people were given to grow ground provisions, but it's where they also manifested their Afrosyncratic religious practices so that they could produce bush teas, bush medicines, bush bath, build community, heal themselves and each other. And so the plot here really is sort of grounded in the recognition of the plot that the enslaved Africans Africans worked in and creating more kind of awareness around that system of planting. 
In the space, you also have embroidered works mm-hmm. that accompany the apothecary and as well as a library and a seed bank. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a bit more about those elements? Yeah, so there are a series of panels of embroidered drawings, which I think are kind of similar to the garden in that um, the way in which the plot is layering different traditions of plants, different um, intercropping systems, the drawings are also referencing women's domestic labor and the influence of Europe on Barbados in terms of practices like crochet and embroidery. And women in Barbados, whether they were black or white and whatever class they came from, uh, women of my mother's generation who would have been born in the 20s and 30s, all knew how to crochet and embroider. And I've been thinking about how in some ways there's a kind of um, a violence within the notion of embroidery because it was a there was a sense that to be feminine, you had to know how to do this, whether or not you wanted to. On the other hand, it would have provided some level of economic independence for working women that they could support their families based on learning these traditions and creating practical things in the house that people would buy. There's a very meditative way of making these pieces that forces me to slow down. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've i been thinking a lot about slow cultural work over the last few years and the importance of moving more slowly ideas around degrowth. And so the act of embroidering and crocheting, and I have women that are working with me. I have my mom who's in her late 80s, my aunt, a sister, some friends. Um, And so we sit around and we're embroidering and crocheting and appliquing together and having conversations about the work. And it's also, I think, when you leave the plot, when you leave the living apothecary and you come into this small room, it's a moment that you can sit down, have a cup of tea. There are going to be some shelves with books that are speaking about the history of the plantation, that it's a stimulating space intellectually, or it's, you know, creating a space for people to have conversation or just to sit quietly and enjoy something that's beautiful and calm. I also know that you've worked with some other people to bring this project to life, as you just mentioned, with your mother and your aunt. And in this case, you have invited a Rotterdam-based artist and gardener, Yuri Gupin, mm-hmm. as well as local herbalists in Sharjah. So what has that process of collaboration been like for you? Magic. Yuri, I met in Schopenhauer in Germany at an incredible seminar uh, looking at how permaculture ethics and practices of permaculture could influence a renewed art world. And it was really a transformational uh, seminar to attend. It was very small, maybe 25 people. And Yuri was there and he had built a garden um, in Schopenhauer at this artist residency place. And I just felt like an affinity with him and invited him to maybe come and work with me. He has his own personal seed bank of about 600 seeds. And uh, he has a lineage of his mother, his father, his grandmother, all are working in ecology and botany. His grandmother was the first female biodynamic farmer in Europe in 1947. And he shared her workbook with us when we were there. He has encyclopedic knowledge of plants and is just like a smart and kind and wonderful person to work with. So I felt so much more confident because this is such a foreign environment. And this is like an experiment. Are these plants going to live? What's going to happen? And I felt that if I could share that process with him, that we would have a much better chance of success. 
And it's just nice to work with people that you like mm -hmm. and that you respect. And it's good to be around people that are smarter than you so you can learn. Um, so that's been a magical process. Yeah, he's uh, very much uh, part of the society right now. He's made a lot of friends yes. and planting in the <laughs> in the urban garden. So yeah. that's really nice yeah. to see. No, I think uh, he's been good. What I mentioned the other day when uh, I bumped into you in the in the restaurant, and he said, "I feel like a local." Yeah. I said, "You are a local." <laughs> you've, yeah, uh, very much local. Working yeah. in the in the garden, you've uh, made a lot of friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People think. are coming back in. There was a lady from Iran, I think, with her daughter and she came in she's been in a couple of times to come and check and see how things are growing and yeah it's been really lovely to fill our listeners in we are now going to be listening to the sound work which is part of Annelie's SB15 work it's a medley of spoken words called a blessing for disalienation bless this entanglement of trees shrubs and herbal offerings a hybrid lushness of fertile vegetal beings in hallowed ground Bless this blooming, thriving, flourishing gorgeousness of flora. Circe, castor, lemongrass, calendula, chamomile, echinacea, blue vervain, moringa, and milk thistle. So how does this work speak to the broader idea that you've discussed in the past about how plot gardens are revolutionary and can symbolize resistance to harmful systems? Because as we know, plantation sites are landscapes of historical trauma and violence. I think that in our educational system, so much of that, the Africanization of the Caribbean has not been studied enough I think, in our regular curriculum. So while we learn about the system of the plantation and the monocropping practices, because things like obia, which is the kind of collective term for African syncretic religious practices, maybe your audience here are more familiar with the term voodoo coming out of Haiti and the French Caribbean. But practices like obia, these African syncretic practices were illegal up until the 1990s. And if you were accused of practicing obia, you could be punished by torture, by imprisonment or death. And so I think what happened is that that information went underground as a strategy for survival. What I'm observing now that I'm older in Barbados is I'm seeing a greater sense of pride among Black Barbadians who are more confident in expressing and, you know, implementing their practices in public more than they would have when I was a child. And so I think maybe having that knowledge, studying about the medical properties of our plants, like we may know that strawberries or blueberries have certain values when we haven't been studying the properties of the things that grow in our country. So I think valuing uh, through education and shifting curriculum, but seeing that, you know, there are more people in the University of the West Indies that are kind of giving a lot more credibility to understanding our past differently. I think also the Black Lives Matter movement has made a very big change and that there's a greater sense of confidence. Barbados has just recently become a republic, as you know, making decisions about taking down Admiral Lord Nelson's statue, which was done in a very mature kind of grown-up way, uh, becoming the republic. I think there's another kind of reckoning that's happening as a post-independent Black country that is important for us to become more mature and, and it's reckoning with the history of the plantation, which is still very evident in terms of hierarchy, 
a sense of who belongs and who doesn't, who's included, who's excluded. But I feel that there's a kind of um, an interest in challenging some of these things in different ways now. Yeah, there's definitely a shift, I think, a generational shift that can be seen all over the world. And um, I was also thinking back to the time when I went with you uh, to visit that site where you were looking at the plants Mm -hmm. and... um, Yeah, the Walker's Reserve. The Walker's Reserve. I think that was really special for Mm -hmm. me to witness what was happening. And it was bringing back the biodiversity that you were talking about. Yeah. So it was, again, a 17th century plantation. And about 55 years ago, it became a silica sand quarry. And it's now being converted into a permaculture and conservation site. So I'm developing a garden there that's pretty much focused on women's reproductive and post-reproductive health. But yeah, that's a great thing to do with a piece of land that has been through a lot of trauma in terms of monoculture farming. The soil is exhausted. Um, You know, how do we create spaces that are sustainable for the longer term? How do we feed ourselves? I mean, when we had, uh, we have hurricanes coming through the region. If a hurricane hits Miami and wipes it out, we go hungry. We import 90% of what we eat, right? So the question now is also around food sovereignty and being able to be more independent in that way. I mean, COVID was an absolute disaster. All commercial flights stopped. Some of the supermarket shelves were empty. Um, You know, these are really important issues that we need to face as a young independent nation. Yes, and this is also being addressed here in Sharjah with um, planting our own crops as well Mm -hmm. and trying to import less. So it seems to be that there is a shift, like you mentioned. Yeah. How do you think that transplanting this project, which is a, a large project and an ongoing project, into the specific geography of Sharjah, how has that been? Because we know landscape-based art is literally rooted in a particular place and its history. And you recently had an exhibition in Scotland, mm-hmm. A Hymn to the Banished, which was commissioned uh, by the National Trust for Scotland as part of their Facing Our Past project. Mm-hmm. So how has it been bringing it specifically to Sharjah, but also your overall experience in various landscapes? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that... Um In terms of the work in Scotland, so the Facing Our Past project is an attempt on the part of the National Trust for Scotland to recognize the colonial histories inherent in some of the properties that they own. And I was invited to work with Balmakara Estate in the Highlands because the governor of that property was the governor of Barbados from 1800 to 1806. He was referred to as the botanic governor, and he was one of the first people to bring plant material from the West Indies to Kew Gardens to contribute to their... So it was like botany in service of empire and the extraction of these plant materials for research purposes in the British Empire. But I was really interested to learn that the Gallic people in the Highlands would use plants for healing, and they also used incantations and charms. Enslaved African society also use plants for healing and incantations and charms. And so I was imagining that when these people came to Barbados, did their systems of knowledge rub up against the enslaved African systems? Did they share their plant knowledge and influence each other's practices somehow? And so I produced a body of work called A Hymn to the Banish that was looking at this, um, the way in which the British Empire clear their prisons. We were at one point called, uh, you know, the dung heap of Britain's prisons to clean their societies of unwanted people, which included a small number of women that were banished. And thinking about how that notion of banishment and creating clean environments happens today 
In the case of Barbados, we have an industrial school where young girls who are taken off the streets for wandering, which is a colonial crime, and they're put into an industrial center where they're not educated, they're not fed properly, but they're taken off the street. There are these really bizarre colonial vestiges that we continue to reckon with in the West Indies. And so I was interested in that. You spoke about your work with Tilting Axis and your residency project, Fresh Milk Barbados. Can you tell our listeners more about both initiatives? Fresh Milk is an artist-led initiative that I founded in 2011. It was set up as an experiment to offer a kind of a bridging program for young graduates in Barbados. I noticed that a lot of my students within a year of graduating were no longer making work. And so I thought about trying to create some kind of a program that would offer some kind of support. So we set up Fresh Milk. Um, It has a reading room called the Colleen Lewis Reading Room. We have just under 4,000 books. So we have a kind of a critical space for thinking and for gathering and for writing. And then established a residency program for both local, regional and international artists. We've hosted just under 70 artists from around the region and internationally and built a lot of connections with colleagues around the Caribbean. Tilting Axis then came out of Fresh Milk. It's a, an, an annual meeting that I co-founded with Holly Bino. And that has happened in five different countries in the English-speaking, Spanish-speaking and French-speaking Caribbean. It looks at how to create a healthier cultural ecosystem for the visual arts in the region. And it has brought together artists, curators, directors of art institutions, um, writers, people that are interested in what's happening in the contemporary Caribbean space. And Solange Farkas, who came to the first Tilting Axis in Barbados, very kindly invited us to come and be part of the Video Brazil uh, gathering in 2015. And that gave us an opportunity to kind of broaden the conversation we've been having across the region. Yeah, you also initiated the Caribbean Linked Mm -hmm. and the talks program that continued during the pandemic. Yeah, so Caribbean Linked is a really beautiful program. Holly and I co-founded with Elvis Lopez, who is the founder of Atelier 89 in Aruba. And that is a regional residency. It brings in maybe about a dozen young artists from the French, Spanish, Dutch and English region. And the reason that we work across linguistic areas in the Caribbean is because the colonial project really tried to divide the region on language. And we think it's really important to develop a sense of community and brotherhood and sisterhood. And many of the artists coming in have maybe never been to another Caribbean country. They've never been to a country that speaks a different language. I often say that at Caribbean Linked, the artists come in as islands and they leave as an archipelago. And it's such a beautiful thing to witness. And those groups stay together Actively for years after. So, yeah, that's a great program as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for joining us on the Biennial Bites, Annalie. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners who tuned in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our conversation series. To view Annalie's works online, click on the link in the show notes. To see them in person, please visit Beit Al Harma Courtyard in El Mareja Square. And also for workshops, go online to find out more information. All workshops will be taking place in Beit Abdurrahim Jassim next door. See you there. For more of these chats with artists from around the world, subscribe to Sharjah Art Foundation's channel wherever you get your podcasts. For updates about the ongoing Sharjah Biennial, follow us on Instagram at Sharjah Art.